Well, our topic today is how meditation transforms your life. Our speakers today are Tiagi Shanti, Nayaswami Dharmadas, and I'm Tiagi Peter, and it's our great honor and joy to share with you today. Oh, yes, and I, I did bring my brain model. <laughs> he insisted with the smoky air that he wear a mask. And he wanted to make sure you knew who it was behind the mask. And I said, I don't think you need to worry. We know now a lot about the nature of meditation and have studied scientifically the many wonderful things that even simple meditative practices can offer people. Um, we've talked many times before about how um, meditation will uh, change the structure and function of your brain to be calmer, to be more relaxed, less prone to anxiety, less chance for depression, uh, decrease your risk for things like substance use disorders. It will make you healthier, improve your cardiovascular health, has profound anti-inflammatory effects. Often in medicine now, when we talk about illnesses like depression and uh, diabetes, we often talk about them as inflammatory disorders. And here we have a very simple tool we can teach people that will help with fundamental changes in their body and their brain. In fact, in our medical practice, which is about 65% indigent, most of our patients um, are really struggling financially. And we routinely teach them to meditate. Be to be sure, they're very simple meditation techniques, very basic ones, but we do it because they work. We also give them medication and other kinds of counseling that will be helpful. But using meditation as a helpful tool uh, is also good to help bring about change for them. Well, meditation, when you take it and you add to it the richness of a devotional practice where you're not just trying to calm your body down and have a little more peace of mind and have your mind be a little less noisy where you're actively invoking the presence of God and the masters in your life. There's this tremendous power in the universe, which is God's power, and it becomes available to us. The vastness of God's love becomes available to us in our meditation techniques. And that's the point at which this transformative power of meditation and techniques like Kriya Yoga are able to enter and change us. You know, I was thinking very much about uh, what Yogananda said uh, in his Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam that Swami had presented and edited and we released as a book. In there, he actually makes the comment is that for all human beings, their road to God is through their own nervous system. And I thought, how Dwapara Yuga? How very much with our understanding of about human beings really operate is we have to work with our own nervous systems exactly the way they are right now. And here is a transformative technique which will help you when you practice your meditation um, uh, practices. 
I was also struck by something that Davy said earlier in the week about the time in history we're in right now, in our world history and our culture, that there seems to be a tremendous amount of divisiveness, um, that uh, social issues and political issues just seem to be almost wild in their presentation and almost impossible to avoid in the media or uh, in virtually anything you watch or read. Certainly, if you look at something like Twitter or Facebook or just news on the internet, um, you really have to be careful to not get drawn into some of these tremendous, almost cataclysmic arguments. You know, I thought it was very worth thinking some about the neurobiology, not only of meditation, but also what is happening in people's brains right now with this level of political and social upheaval, because I think there's some lessons here. You know, I actually began about three months ago when I found out our topic for this, and I was thinking about this, and I began paying attention to things I was reading in the news media, even um, highly persuasive things like fundraising pieces from large organizations that, you know, you've, I'm sure you've received these where you open them and the first thing they say, say is something like, the world is about to end, all these terrible things are going to happen, and we only have uh, one hour left. If you send your money in right now, you will help make this change. Well, of course, they're done much more reasonably, and they often lay out very well reasonable but highly alarming uh, <laughs> facts, which make you think, well, I should be alarmed, not just a little alarmed, but I should be very alarmed. I should act right now. And the trick is they make it seem reasonable. They make it seem like you'd be stupid not to feel alarmed right now and greatly upset and agitated about this. And you should think about it all the time. That is a persuasion technique. The other thing I've noticed is very often there's a push to make us think about things with self-righteous indignation. So they will talk about... Um, one group of people who doesn't believe exactly what you do or they think differently about this and they're bad. They're bad. They're so awful. You should be disgusted. You should be disgusted with them. Not only disgusted, but you should be indignant. How dare they think that way? And I am so much better because I don't think that way. <laughs> Have you seen with both these things what they do? Both of them take you right back into your most primitive self your most simple self, and they begin walling you off from the rest of humanity, from the rest of the world, and making you smaller. They contract you. What are we trying to do when we meditate? This is about expansion, expanding our awareness, expanding our sympathies for other people. And here we are in a world, we have these powerful practices, but our world right now is telling us, contract, contract. Be smaller. Listen to us. Do what we say outwardly and get smaller, and we will take care of it. We know what to do. Let's look a little more at this neurobiology because it turns out 
this, the reason these things work is there's very potent mechanisms inside our brain which actually begin to shift us away from our higher nature. And I think it's worth understanding these because it will make you more resistant in the future and you will begin to see you have a choice how you feel about things. You can know something is not great. You can know something needs to change. But you can also approach it creatively with positive energy and not with just alarm, not with a sense of entitlement or self-righteousness or I'm a victim. All these things that destroy our abilities to live super consciously. I wanted to start by telling you about the curious case of the zombie rat. <laughs> no, this is not a lost Sherlock Holmes mystery that... The BBC is finally putting out on PBS for us to watch with Jeremy Brett. No. This actually was a story told by a neurobiologist that I actually enjoy listening to because he, uh, he's a bright guy and often takes simple things happening in the animal world and makes them understandable for how they, how we affect, how they affect us as people and how we react as people. And... <clears throat> He actually read an article about uh, a study on rats, and there are people that that's kind of their job as biologists. They go into cities and they study rat behavior. And one of the things that came out of one study is they noticed that most rats have typical rat behavior around their mortal enemy, the feral cat. They are dinner. The feral cat is the diner, okay? <laughs> And they have built into their little rat brains um, a sense of great alarm when they see a cat, when they smell a cat, when they hear a cat. Anything that reminds them of a cat makes them want to run and hide. And certainly, if they're around a cat, they do everything they can to not be noticed. Well, they actually came across this odd behavior where every once in a while they notice a rat would walk right out in front of a feral cat get as close as it could to them, and just sit down and wait to be dinner. And the cat would dine. And they thought, this is really bizarre. What is this? So finally, they were able to catch a few of the dinners before they got snacked on. And they studied their behavior in a laboratory. Very interesting what they found out. They found out most of their behavior was completely normal rat behavior. Nice, healthy rats living in a city. Um, but what they found was when they exposed the rat to a cat, it had anomalous behavior. It would actually, rather than fleeing, it would walk, walk right up to the cat, and if the cat was not restrained, would allow itself to be dined on. And they thought, how is this possible? So they actually investigated the rat's brains. And they found that the portion of the brain that's concerned about alarm and evasion had been turned off. And the part of their brain that was concerned with goal-oriented, let me go do something, was turned on in a way that attracted them to cats. And they thought, well, how did this happen? It turned out it was an infection with a parasite. Here's the life cycle of the parasite. The parasite starts in the cat. Uh, the cat uh, eliminates it, and it's in its leavings. The rats come around, and they're eating and scuffling around in the cat's leavings. They get a little bit of the parasite inside them. It gets in their tummies, doesn't reproduce, but it goes to their brains, and it hijacks their 
limbic system and tells them they're no longer afraid of cats and it hijacks their prefrontal lobes and it tells them, we love cats, we're going to go find cats. And the best thing that can happen to us is to be dinner. And this is what happens. And I remember that actually this neurobiologist said the first time he read this, he thought it was a joke. He actually had to go and do some more research, and it turned out it had been very carefully studied. In fact, this happened. Fortunately, there's very few things at all like this in humans. Um, and I won't even go there. It's a that's a long discussion. But that's a physical parasite. You know what's happening in the world right now? There are negative thought parasites. And these negative thought parasites will infect your brain and hijack it. The next time you're talking someone to someone and a topic comes up which they're highly excited about, and suddenly they go from having a normal conversation to where they're agitated and almost yelling at you about this item, wonder what's happening inside their brain. Is that someone who's functioning normally, or is this someone who just had their brain hijacked? Just like that rat had his brain hijacked by the parasite, is this a person who's had their brain hijacked by a negative thought? And right now, the big negative thought seems to be in these two areas that we talked about, self-righteous indignation and self-centered alarm, reasonable alarm. The sense that what I'm worried about, what I'm frightened about, well, of course I should be. Everybody should be. You know, I had this experience. I was, uh, um, after I had read this and had pretty much forgotten about our friend, the zombie rats, I was uh, working one day at our clinic, and our project for that day was to figure out our emergency preparedness program. And so we were looking at all sorts of things, wildfire risk, uh, what if there was a pandemic and we got inundated with extremely sick people, all these kinds of things. They're kind of the worse what-if scenarios we could be confronted with, and we try to prepare as best we can. And I'd been thinking all day about this, and toward the end of the day, I caught myself kind of worrying because I thought, well, you know, if we have a fire, we only have this much water, and we only have this one hose, and we've made these other plans, but gee, I wonder if that'll be enough. And uh, I was starting to get worried, and I had this thought right then, Peter, how does it feel to be a zombie rat? <laughs> because I realized I'd let my brain get hijacked. Right up to that point where I was still making good decisions, kind of thinking about what's best, being super conscious and creative, it was fine. But the moment I got caught in that loop of alarm, where the alarm was getting worse and worse, and I was getting a little more concerned, maybe we need to do more right now, um, not in ways that I think were going to be any, any more helpful, but certainly they felt that way. And it felt so reasonable. It felt like, of course I should feel this way. Of course I should feel alarmed. That was a real lesson for me. Let's talk about the neurobiology. We'll actually look at this. <clears throat> so this is, uh, this is our brain. And... The portions of the brain that we're going to talk about are the prefrontal lobes. That's that inch and a half right here in the front, okay? This is the most super conscious, most highly elegant part of the brain. This is the part of the brain that when it gets activated, we feel creative, we feel happier. 
Uh, we feel very empathetic. Uh, we have a better sense of humor. We're able to get along better with other people. And we've actually begun to understand that's just a few things. I could, I won't go into all of it because we've talked about that often before. And today I'd like to get into a slightly different part of this. It also turns out that on the under part of the prefrontal lobes, there's a little area, very specific. It actually has a name. It's called the anterior cingulate gyrus. Sometimes people call it the anterior cingulate. And it seems to be a part of the prefrontal lobes that is concerned with empathy and compassion. And so when someone is feeling great love and kindness in their heart, think of a St. Francis, think of Swami when he was counseling us with great love and compassion toward us. Yes, he was feeling a lot here in his heart, but if we could look inside the brain, we'd probably see the anterior cingulate gyrus was also activated in the prefrontal lobes. And so it's a way we can tell kind of what people are feeling by looking at their brain function. Okay, let's take the outer part of the brain off. And we are left with the brain stem and the limbic system. Limbic system is called that because it looks like a half moon, like a limbus. And there's a number of structures that sort of hover right around it that are part of the limbic system, sometimes called the paralympic limbic system. Um, and they include two structures. One's the amygdala and the other is called the insula. The insula, interestingly enough, is that center in the brain that when we feel feelings of uh, indignance, we feel indignant towards something or someone, um, or feel disgust, this area of the brain actually lights up, it activates. And you can tell someone is feeling an emotion of that type. It's very interesting because um, I didn't know that initially. I actually heard a talk about monkey behavior, and the biologist who was talking about this said that they had noticed that uh, in monkeys, in troops, they would often have a very specific order of dining. When they would find a food uh, store of lots of bananas or other kinds of fruits, what would happen is the leader of the troop would go up and dine first and after a, a few moments would turn around and say, there's enough for everybody, everybody come in. Well, imagine a situation where the troop shows up, they see this giant uh, uh, buffet of food in front of them and uh, one of the adolescents who's just starving just says, heck with this, and runs up and starts to chow down. Well, what do the other monkeys do? Well, initially they go, Oh, ooh, this is wrong. He's broken a taboo. And then it's, ooh, ooh, ooh. Look at what he's done. I'm feeling indignant. I feel self-righteous. He shouldn't break this. And before you know it, it's, ooh, 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 ooh. And monkeys are grabbing sticks and throwing at this poor adolescent who was just hungry. And he finally gets the message and runs away. Well, if you look inside monkey brain, what you see is that area of the insula that area about disgust and indignation is what has lit up. And guess what? That happens in humans. And so when you feel that feeling of disgust or indignation for a concept or another person or another lifestyle or something happening in the world, guess what? You just got hijacked. Yep. 
that your insula is firing. Turns out the insula, very interesting structure because it has a pleasurable undertone. So not only, not only are you hooked into this, but your brain makes you think that this is pleasant. This is nice. Not only, not only am I right and you're really wrong, but I feel great. And the more indignant I get, the better I feel. Now, this is short-term. Long-term, it's disastrous. But short-term, you can feel that. This is also an area of the brain that's associated with substance use disorders and drug addiction for the same reason. Because people get this surge, in this case, it's dopamine, dopamine surge in their insula, and they feel great. This is even before they've taken their drug. So they have this association of this is pleasant, this is wonderful. So this is another way that we get hooked. So this is the insula, okay? That's indignation and um, self, uh, yeah, feeling, you know, self-important uh, and indignant would be insula. And boy, this is a limbic system function. This is not a higher function like the superconscious prefrontal lobes. Amygdala is concerned with worry and fear. And in fact, our amygdala is designed to respond more strongly to fear and worry than pretty much anything else. And it takes very little to get it started. And both the insula and the amygdala are trainable. You can get them really good at being self-righteous and indignant and being fearful and alarmed. Those are trainable things. The more you do them, the better those areas wire, the more active they get. Well, here's the good news, and this is what I'd like to end with, is that it turns out when we meditate, we are strongly activating our prefrontal lobes. And the way our brains are designed is automatically these structures in the limbic system become inhibited or suppressed. Now, this is not emotional suppression. This is just biological behavior. Basically, what happens is the limbic system relaxes. It's realizing it's not needed, and it goes to sleep. In fact, the term we use now is meditation makes the limbic system very unarousable. What I would say, devotee to devotee, is what meditation does is it gives us a moment to decide. I actually had this experience recently where I think for me, one of the uh, things that tends to really annoy me as much as I'm going to get annoyed is if I've taught someone how to do a specific thing that's really important and impacts patient care and whether patients are happy and they're well and healthy, we haven't hurt them. Um, but you have to do it in a very specific way. And often it's very detailed. And so I might have on 10 different occasions, already gone through multiple explanations of why this is important, what happens if we don't do this, and please, please, please pay attention to this. Don't think about anything else while you do it, because if you screw this up, it's awful for the patient. It's awful for us. And a few weeks ago, I just was faced with this situation. At the end of a very long day, I was very tired, and... Um, this had happened. Someone had not done a critical step in the care of this patient, and here was this upset patient standing right in front of me, and they were right. We had totally messed this up, but it was preventable. And there was a part of me that was just indignant. 
I was going, wait, I have to talk to this person. I can't believe they did that. I have given several of my colleagues on the staff, if they ever see me starting to get ramped up like that, to just tell me to stop. You know, poke me in the arm, shake my shoulder. If they have to actually come and shake me physically, I've given them permission to do that. And uh, Patricia was standing right next to me, and she just poked me in the arm and she said, stop. <laughs> and I knew exactly what she meant because I could feel my brain getting hijacked. And I took a breath, and that moment is part of what meditation gives us. It gives us a little separation from this more primitive part of who we are. It is a part of us, but we're learning to control it. And so it gave me a moment, and within a minute, I, w I felt normal again. I was able to actually have a good conversation with the person, and they may make the mistake again, but I'm not unhappy. I'm not overly upset. I could actually take care of the patient because I wasn't upset. I could focus on them. You know, one of the things that we see is that particularly with the insula, remember how I said it's about um, this kind of uh, indignant um, self-righteousness? They've actually found that when people's insula is activated, it shuts off the empathetic pathways in the brain. So let's say you're someone who's trying to be empathetic with someone and you flip into this self-righteous indignance, insulus firing, it shuts down empathy and suddenly all you feel is self-righteous and kind of upset with the person. Your ability to empathize with where they're at and be helpful to them has gone away. The more you strengthen the empathetic circuitry in your brain with your meditation, the more the insula wants to sleep, and your tendency toward doing that is diminished. You know, I'd just like to end with saying we should all remember as we do our meditation practices, even on these very basic, simple levels, God is really trying to help us with our day-to-day -day behavior. I think all of us realize very early in our meditation practices, it's not like we sit in the morning, we sit in the afternoon, and our spiritual life doesn't really happen the rest of the day. It isn't until we get back to meditating. We realize, well, it's 24-7. When we're, when we're living our lives, that's part of our Kriya Yoga practice. That's part of our meditative practice. It's just a different aspect. It's our service aspect. And usually what people begin to find, it's a little like training a puppy. You don't, don't train a puppy for one hour a day and then let it run over and start devouring the drapes. You actually make sure the puppy's being trained all day. And we begin to see that, that our lives are really one constant flow where we're trying to tune into these more superconscious levels of God speaking to us, this vastness of God's power, this vastness of God's consciousness, and our brains are becoming refined enough we can begin to listen to that and manifest it, and happily, limbic system goes to sleep. I love that Joe Tish has brought up this prayer multiple times recently where he said one of the highest prayers Yogananda talked about was, I will reason, I will will, I will act, but guide thou my reason, will, and activity. I know for me, often at work, I'll just say when I'm starting to get tired is, Master, make your thoughts my thoughts, because I know I'm safe then. If they're not my thoughts, it's probably going to be pretty good. 
And I remember Swami toward the end of his life would say, sometimes I can't tell where my thoughts end and master's thoughts begin. I've thought about them so much. I felt the integration of them so much. That's all I feel now is master's thoughts within me. 